So we're in Romans this morning, chapter 10. We're just going to read a few verses out of Romans 10, beginning in verse 8 and going down to 11. It's printed for you in your program. Let me invite you to stand together as we hear God's word. The Apostle Paul gave these things to say to the church of Rome. He has said that his, in uh, chapter 10 and verse 1, that his heart's desire in prayer um, was for God to save them, to, to speak to them, um, that, they might, that they might be saved. Paul is, uh, has finished in, in chapters 8 and 9. Um, a series where he's talking about um, how God has set his love upon, um, upon his people. Um, and so we read here now in verse 8. Paul says, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, our desire is to believe, and so in that, help our unbelief. Our desire is that we would see Jesus and him only, and so we come confidently knowing that it is he who speaks, and he alone who has the words of life. Speak, we pray, for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Amen. Be seated. All right. New sermon series. Over the course of the summer, we're going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed. Now, some have asked why. This seems like a really uh, a really elementary kind of um, this kind of basic. Christianity stuff. Why would we do a whole series given over to the Apostles' Creed? In order to answer that question, both in the abstract, but also, um, as you'll see in a minute, with some really important principle behind it. Back in the series that I preached on Ephesians, one of the things that we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 was Paul talking about, for there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we said at that point that likely that was one of the earliest creedal statements of the church, that this was Paul actually quoting at some point uh, in that text something that had been circulating around and that had been a part of uh, the the Christian tradition up until that point as a thing to, uh, to be oriented around. So one of the things that I showed you in that series was a, um, we drew a pyramid, and there were three levels to the pyramid. At the bottom of the, bottom of the pyramid, there was what we would call casual issues. These are things that are um, perhaps inconsequential. The, these, are, these are not really live or die issues. Um, th- but these are things that nevertheless Christians talk about, um, churches debate, um, 
Should the minister wear a robe or not? Should the, should the uh, sanctuary be called a worship center or a sanctuary? Should we have pews or not? Should we meet at 11 o'clock in the morning or at 4 o'clock in the afternoon? These are, these are inconsequential things when it, ta- when it comes to Christian unity and whether or not we have unity together. The second level of the pyramid, kind of moving up the pyramid, was what I called the confessional level. The confessional level is the level where we have um, we have we have things that have been that have been thought long and hard about that have been studied well that people have um, prayed about and sought the wisdom of the scriptures about and the witness of the church about. But nevertheless, in these areas, in this confessional area, good people, Jesus loving people, can disagree. When that disagreement happens, we listen charitably, we engage ironically and charitably, we seek out one another in such a way as to understand, but we also agree that these issues are not issues through which the church lives or dies. These are important issues, but they're not central issues. And then we said at the very top of the pyramid, at the tiniest part of the pyramid, is the creedal section of the pyramid. And the creedal section of the pyramid are the settled things that the church throughout its history, throughout redemptive history, the church has affirmed, has believed. And if we have disagreement on those things, we can still be gracious, but we do not have the grounds for unity. There will be such a fundamental disconnect, a fundamental um, uh, parting of ideas that there cannot be unity. Now, we have the tendency to bump our particular pet issue higher on the pyramid. Right? (laughs) Yeah. That's why the the top of the pyramid is so small. Because whether you are Um, whether you are uh, Baptist or Presbyterian or even Catholic, um, there are still the tenets of the Apostles' Creed that are universally affirmed. That's um, That's why this occurrence this week was so interesting to me. In the midst of everything else that's happening in the world, there was a hearing that took place for a Senate confirmation hearing for the deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. Now, this would have otherwise been a completely innocuous uh, hearing that took place, except for the line of questioning that transpired. The nominee for the position uh, was uh, in some way affiliated with Wheaton. I forget if he was a graduate of Wheaton or if he just went to Wheaton. I'm getting graduate. Okay, thank you. I've got the Wheaton Amen Corner over here. So I'm. (laughs) So, first time that's ever happened. Um, And so. The the one the gentleman that was being uh, the gentleman that was being questioned was had written a blog post and in the blog post it was in the it was in the uh, in the employ of the school therefore he was he was and is bound by um, the doctrinal statement of the school which by the way looks a lot like the Apostles Creed uh, I know so. In, in the hearing, the senator questioning him 
said of something that he wrote. Um, he, said, uh, he said that you wrote, speaking to the man being, uh, being examined, Muslims simply do not have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. Do you believe that statement is Islamophobic? His response, absolutely not, Senator. I'm a Christian, and I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith. That post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school um, that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. And he's interrupted. He says, I apologize. Forgive me. We just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe that people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view? He defends himself again, uh, according to a statement of faith. Um, the, the, uh, the, the questioning goes on, um, and towards the end of it, um, the person being examined says, Senator, I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly in regard to the centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation. The senator responds, I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about. Now, I'm not trying to get partisan. I'm not trying to get political. What I'm trying to say is um, every, everybody operates on the basis of a creed, on the basis of a central set of beliefs. And if you want to know whether or not the Christian faith is compatible with, say, Islam, consider one of the four pillars that says there is no other God but Allah, and Allah has no sons. And the creed says, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried, and on the third day rose again from the dead. You see, if you wonder whether or not understanding the creedal component of our faith is essential, just look at what's transpiring in the world today. And I'm not trying to be the, the, the chicken little, the sky is falling, the everything's falling apart at the seams. I'm not trying to be that guy. What I'm trying to say is that to say I believe is way more than just saying that sounds like a good idea. And that's what I want to get into today. This idea of I believe. Now, we're not going to take the whole creed apart two words at a time. Don't worry. <laughs> we're talking about this in 2020. Um, what we are going to do, though, is spend this morning on this component of, of I believe. And I want to look at what Paul said here just in these few verses um, that we read here in Romans 10. If you look at our text, three times the word believe is used. And the fourth time the word faith is used, believe and faith, came, come from the same Greek root. So I want to do a quick word study with you. I want to talk about what it means to believe. What is the nature of belief? When we think about the nature of belief, we need to think about first what it is not. Um, one of the ways we can talk about what belief is not is to look at um, how, um, 
one of the ways we can look at belief is how it is derided, okay? If you think that to say, I believe, is an easy thing to say, is a popular thing to say, outside of the, uh, outside of the account of the testimony that I just read you a moment ago, consider this. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche would say that, that, that Christian belief is simple ignorance, um, Nietzsche speaks for our age when he distinguishes those who inquire from those who believe. People who inquire are good thinkers. People who believe in something in something are simplistic. Nietzsche explains in the Christian world of ideas, there is nothing that has the least contact with reality. So he's saying in anything that Christians would think about, nothing has contact with reality. And he says there is in it the instinctive hatred of reality that we recognize as the only motivating force at the root of Christianity. To say, I believe in God the Father Almighty is to say, according to Nietzsche, that you and I hate reality. In 2004, Charles Simic, who is a columnist for the New York uh, Times Review of Books, took a trip that he called uh, Going Down South. In it, he remarks, skepticism, empirical evidence, and book learning are in low esteem among the Protestant evangelicals. They reject modern science and they dream of a theocratic state where such blasphemous subject matter would be left out from the school curriculum. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. Because in order to say that, you're saying that your belief system has been proven true and valid, and therefore you can thus disprove someone else's. See, the thing about a creed, the thing about saying I believe, is not that you're going to choose whether or not you're going to have a system of belief. Everybody has a system of belief. Everybody has a creed. Everybody says I believe in something. It's a matter of what you are saying you believe in. The question is not should you subscribe to a creed. The question is rather which creed are you going to subscribe to? Here's the second thing that we need to talk about in terms of belief and the nature of belief. Um, there are detractors to belief, but these are the, here are the two dangers as I see them. Uh, one of the dangers of belief, um, one of the dangers of belief is that it is optional or that it is compartmentalized. Is that it's optional or that it is compartmentalized. In other words, belief is something that you can put on or put off like a shirt or a coat. Or it's something that you, can, um, that you can say on Sunday, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then leave, and then your life is shown that you actually believe something different. In other words, belief becomes optional or it becomes compartmentalized. The second way that belief can get problematic is to say that believe equals I know. Okay, 
So when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, you, what, what some people are saying is, I know that the Bible says there is a God the Father Almighty, and that sounds like a good idea. That's not what belief is. It is not near, it is not knowledge. It's not agreement. So what is belief? What is belief? Belief is this. Um, if you look at the construction of the, of the Greek word here, it has the idea of believing into or being brought into. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, I am believing into God would be a better way of translating that first phrase in the Apostles' Creed. I am believing into God the Father Almighty. That is to say, over and above believing certain truths about God, I am living in, re- in a relation of commitment to God in trust and union. When I say I believe in God, I am professing my conviction that God has invited me to this commitment and declaring that I have accepted his invitation. Now, way back in the day, the church membership process was a year-long process, culminating with a service of baptism, generally on Easter. In that service, one of the most significant things that the new, uh, the new communicants, the new uh, members of the church could do together with the body of Christ was, would be to stand and with one voice declare the words of the creed. Why? Because belief wasn't intellectual assent, nor was it mere knowledge. It was a public declaration and affirmation that I am believing into something, that God has done something, and I have accepted something, and I am now a part of something, and I am declaring that something with everyone else here together. So what is that something that God has done. What it is that God has done is in revealing himself fully and finally in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has, God has conquered our hearts. The heart, is the, uh, the heart is the engine room of all that we think and feel and do. It is the, the central locus of our deep desires. The heart is the place that is driving all of this. And so for Paul to say here in in verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. It doesn't say with the mind one believes. It doesn't say that as an academic category one is saved. It doesn't say that because you've got your theology all lined up that you're saved. No, what it says is with the heart one believes. We're going to talk about how that happens but it is God, the one that is doing the inviting and doing the work that is inviting us in to believe into something. In verses eight and nine, we see that the word is near you. How is that? God, God has spoken throughout uh, history through the mouths of his prophets and poets to declare truth about himself, that he is the God who created heaven and earth, and he is the one that brought his people out of slavery, out of exile, out of death. 
that God sent his son, Jesus, clothed in our flesh, the enfleshed one, in order to take on our humanity and live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died. And that then, through Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the Spirit is then poured out on the earth, and God's Spirit is now flooding the earth, revealing himself to tribe and nation and people and tongue globally as the God of heaven and earth, the only one true and right God. What happened at Pentecost now unites uh, everyone to the living word, Jesus. This is how the word is near. Verse 9. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, this particular passage right here in 9 and 10 has given rise to a lot of confusion. Paul is not advocating here that a sinner's prayer is some sort of magic talisman that makes you right with God. Because if you look at the way the grammar is constructed here, what Paul is saying is there is a work that has been done in your heart by God And out of your mouth, you are confirming what God has already done in your heart. It is not as if you're, by saying words, something magically happens to you. The heart is changed first. The mouth declares what God has done. The outward confession of the mouth is not an added step. It's simply confirmation of what God has done. It's making clear what he's done inside of us. So what he's done, well, if you look here in verse 10, um, for with the heart one believes and is justified. What Paul is saying here, and, and again, not to get too grammar nerdy, and believe me, those of you who know me know me well, I'm the last person to be a grammar person. I mean, really, I failed Greek multiple times. I'm not kidding about that. I just, me and grammar, we're not, we're not tight like that. But I was fascinated in this text because all of this, um, for with the heart one believes and is justified, all of that's being said in passive voice. Do you know what that means? It means that the heart's being acted on. It's not the one doing the action. It's the one being acted on. It's not doing the action. God is the one that is saving and justifying God is the one putting a new song on our lips, giving us new truth to declare. Justification, Paul's doctrine of justification um, is one that shows us that through Jesus, we are given, um, we are given Jesus's record as our own. Um, so it is not just, uh, just as if I'd never sinned. It's not just that things are set back to zero and now we're just sort of set off on a Christian journey of doing good works. It's not just that I've never sinned, but it's also just as if I've always obeyed. It is Jesus' perfect righteousness, his lived, his active righteousness that has now been given to us. And so by saying with the, that God is the one that 
is justifying us. It is God the one who is giving us his very son's perfect life, obedience, death, resurrection, all of it, so that his record is ours. Our record is his. Jesus is the one that takes our punishment. We're the ones that are invited into to participate in his glory, his his dominion, his active righteousness, his life, because God is the one that is doing all of this. Why? Because God loves his people. J.A. Packer says this, he says, I show faith in God by bowing to his claim to rule and manage me by receiving Jesus Christ, his son, as my own Lord and Savior and by relying on his promise to bless me here and hereafter. But Christian faith, belief, only begins when we attend to God's self-disclosure in Christ and in Scripture, when we meet him as the creator who commands all people everywhere to repent and to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, as he has commanded us. Christian faith means hearing, noting, and doing what God says. What does it mean to say, I believe? It says, it means I am a disciple. I am one who believes in God, who has been invited into what God is doing and am pledging in this lean summary statement my wholehearted commitment to love, live, and follow after him. Some ask, uh, Billy asked me, she's like, why did, you, why did you not program on the first Sunday of the Apostles' Creed? To say the Apostles' Creed together. In part, it's because, we're, because of this. Because I want us to really know what it means to say, I believe in something. Because embodied words and actions have meaning. We're not just passive participants in worship. To say, I believe, means that these words are true for me, not because I necessarily understand them, not because I can necessarily explain them, but because I believe that without these words, the God of the Bible ceases to be. And that doesn't mean that the creed is a replacement for the scriptures. No, in fact, the creed came around as a, as a quick, handy summary of the faith. And no... The creed was not something that was developed by the apostles, all 12 of them sitting around the room, and one of them starting out and saying, you know what? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then another one saying, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. It didn't happen that way. (laughs) This is not how that went down. Also, just so we're clear, the creed didn't show up like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the resurrection of Jesus, after for like, you know, four or 500 years, the church had just kind of gone into complete anarchy about what it believed. As far as we can tell, the earliest functional copy uh, statement of the creed, at least in its earliest form, was around 200 A.D., okay? It would have been from the teachings of the apostles. The apostles didn't write it, but that's why it's called the Apostles' Creed. And it's designed not to explain everything about the Christian faith, but to talk about the essentials of the Christian faith. It's a lean summary. Paul here in verse 11, we'll we'll close and and, and come before the Lord's table. Um, But in verse 11, Paul says, and we read this as our assurance of pardon, 
Paul says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Why? Because belief is being brought into something. Um, Paul's quoting here kind of uh, two ideas. Isaiah 28, 16, which he quoted earlier in Romans 9, 33. Uh, Isaiah 28 says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Another translation says, whoever believes will not be dismayed. And then he's also saying, uh, quoting from uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Listen to what, listen to what the, the prophet Joel says. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, this passage from Joel is really interesting because if you remember in the book of Acts, when you have that section in Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost, where they're quoting Joel, your your old men shall prophesy and your young men shall, you remember this one? This is what Joel says next. <laughs> this is what Joel says next. And he's talking about um, that the Lord, it shall come back to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. At that moment in Pentecost, this was the Tower of Babel undone. All of the chaos and division and scattering of the world has been undone. And the church has once again been gathered together under a common banner, not a language of a national identity, but under the banner of Jesus Christ and the spirit whom he has poured out. And it is through that promise that the prophet Joel says, there will be therefore no one who calls on the Lord who will not be saved. So why is it so hard to believe? Why is it so derided to believe? Why is it so incredibly um, counterintuitive or countercultural to believe? Uh, David Bentley Hart says this. He says, the reason the very concept of God has become at once so impoverished, so thoroughly mythical, and ultimately so incredible for so many modern persons is not because of all the interesting things we have learned over the past few centuries, but because of all the vital things we have forgotten. The reason that this is so uh, unbelievable is not because of all the new stuff we've learned. It's all the stuff we've forgotten. Ray Kanata in his book, Rooted, um, says this. When Christians affirm their faith by saying the Apostles' Creed, they are effectively retelling this story. We are summarizing what we believe. But we are also telling one another a story that we already know and often forget. It's a story that bears repeating because there's no better story. And it gives us our bearings in life. And and Ray goes on to say this. By making explicit what we do believe, the Apostles' Creed also guards the church against what we don't believe. The creed allows Christians to identify and avoid inadequate or harmful versions of the story. The Apostles' Creed guards against individualism by reminding us that belonging to the church and being in community with one another isn't just helpful to the Christian life, it's the goal of the Christian life. We're going to talk about that more when it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. 
Now more than ever, beloved, we need to know what it is we believe and what it is the, what it is the thing that we are united with all Christians of all denominational persuasions. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't study the intricacies of our doctrine and faith. It doesn't mean that we should not winsomely defend the truth of Scripture. It doesn't mean that we should become less distinctive in terms of our doctrinal identity. It just means that we should be very clear about what we are united about. We should be incredibly clear about those that we can join arm with and and defend the truth of the gospel with. And no, I don't care what your eschatological position is, whether you're mid-trib, pan-trib, amill, pan-mill, sawmill. Look, at the end of the day, what we believe, how we believe it, how we declare it, how we defend it, if you think, listen, if you think that that, if that story of that Senate confirmation hearing is going to be an anomaly in your workplace, in your job, in the public square, how do you ironically, lovingly, but resolvedly defend what it is that you believe? You can't do it unless you know it. You can't do it unless you know it. So that's the question that we want to consider this summer. What is the thing that is animating our lives? What gives us hope? What are we caught up in? What are we drawn up into? What are we believing into? How does our lives reveal what we actually cherish, value, believe? How would you want to ask God to help you this summer in understanding the Bible? How would you want to ask God to help you drive into your heart the most fundamental truths that God, the one who created heaven and earth, sent Jesus Christ in order to save you and rescue you. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, you and I are raised from the dead. And because Jesus has poured out his spirit, we get his spirit. And because Jesus has taken our condemnation, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because Jesus has promised that there is a place that is coming, that is restored, resurrected, all things made new place, we can have confidence in that place too. And because Jesus has said that there is a church that he gave his life for, not just individual Christian silos who have me and Jesus and that's all I need, what does it mean for us to be the church and how does that move us out into the world? Would God give us that picture of what it means when we say, I believe? 